Good morning. I'm Susie, and I'm a codependent. Some of you are tracking there. That may sound like it has something to do with my taxes. Um, it actually doesn't. Uh, if you have any personal knowledge of a 12-step program, you know that's how everyone introduces themselves to each other at every meeting. And the group responds back with, hi, Susie, or whatever your name is. So that's why someone did that. I feel like I should give you guys another pass at that. So I'm Susie, and I'm a codependent. Yeah, you guys fit right in. Oh, at a, at a recovery group, whether you're an alcoholic, an addict of some kind, or a codependent, that's how you begin sharing any thoughts that you have with the group. It's the simple exercise that with so much repetition, I think just helps you to be honest with yourself. 12-step or recovery programs are all about developing honesty and personal awareness. I actually am a recovering codependent. I attended my first meeting last spring. I got the 12-step workbook and have been formally working through recovery, and it's been totally life-changing. Codependency is best explained by simply being overly dependent on other people in a search for acceptance. Now, if we're honest, it's likely we all fall on that spectrum somewhere, right? But this can be more disruptive in some people's lives. Through conversations with friends of mine who are also looking into codependency, I found myself visiting a group for the very first time and realized immediately what great company I was in. Recovery groups are such a safe place to just be brutally honest with yourself. It's a safe place to share because you're discouraged from talking back to someone who opens up in the group. You're just there to listen to others, or you can share your own story. Advice is not asked for or encouraged. Just listening, accepting. It sounds a lot like how church should be. Why do some people feel so much more accepted at a recovery group than they do at church? because sometimes they are. Recovery groups are doing something right and fostering a safe place of acceptance. We could learn a lot from them. Have you ever noticed that a lot of biblical characters, including John, could be introduced in some kind of recovery group? Play along with me here. Hi, my name is John, and in my young age, I believe I have it all figured out, and I judge others who don't. Hi, I'm Noah. I'm a drunk. Hi, my name is Moses. I'm a murderer. Hi, I'm Miriam, and I'm a racist. I'm upset about my brother Moses' interracial marriage. I like this one. Hi, we are Isaac and Rebecca, and we let ourselves become really dysfunctional parents. Hi, I'm Samson, and I struggle with lust. Hi, my name is David. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. Hi, my name is Thomas. I struggle with doubts. Hi, I'm Peter. I can be too much when I need to calm down, and I have a tendency to disappear when I need to show up. Hi, my name is Paul. I'm a Christian killer, and I'm very difficult to work with. 
What's really beautiful about recovery programs is your ticket to join is simply acknowledging that you need to develop some awareness in a certain area of your life. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just need to be humble enough to admit you don't. This is exactly what John has been doing for us in this series. And we've been made aware of some things these last 10 weeks. Things about which we need to be humble enough to admit we may have misunderstood. John has helped us clear away some misunderstandings and develop some awareness regarding some specific areas of faith we Christians tend to believe we have all figured out. And he's narrowed down the essentials to just a few things. Over the course of John's life, we have watched him grow from a son of thunder, calling judgment to rain down on people he thought were unworthy. And he's grown into an apostle of love, who in his old age has really grown in some awareness on what matters most. In our series, John's focus began with the most important thing, Jesus. He said, Jesus is the Christ. Hold on to that tightly. And anything that falls outside of that is just not as important. John challenged us to not make secondary issues the main thing. If someone else agrees that Jesus is the Christ, we are in the same family. Hold on to Jesus tightly and hold on to issues of doctrine with humility. If we wouldn't die for it, we shouldn't pick a fight for it. We learned about the rise of Gnosticism during John's focus on Jesus. How there was this group of people who essentially believed there was a shortcut to spirituality, and it was all about knowledge. If you knew the right things, then there really wasn't any work to be done. You had arrived. John reminded us, that's not how God works. And when we misunderstand God, it disrupts our fellowship with him. Knowing the truth about God is not just an intellectual exercise. We are missing it if that's how we approach God. The point is to walk in fellowship, and that is something we are always working on. And that leads us directly to where John took us next, obedience. When we became aware of what we all naturally assume obedience means is actually very different than what it means biblically. Often when we think about obedience, we think about morality and doing the right thing. But obedience is not about being a better person. It's about fellowship with God. You can be a very good person and have zero fellowship with God. What God wants about our behavior is less about stopping something and more about starting something. Beginning to trust Jesus knows what we need. Beginning to trust Jesus enough to talk honestly about our struggles. This paradigm shift is so important. It's an adjustment of the lens we are using to see God. And what lens we choose determines everything. Obedience is not a burden. It is our freedom, and it's worth protecting. That's what John reframed, keep his commandments, means for us. It's not about doing the right thing or else. It's about understanding the precious value of this fellowship that we can have with our creator, and it's about protecting that, 
watching over it, tending to it, caring deeply for it, keeping it. And then John turned our attention to love and how easily we can misunderstand this thing called love. John showed us that when we are in a relationship with another imperfect human, which is our only option, by the way, that one of us is going to lose their life. We either take their life or we give ours. And he equated this taking from someone else to murdering them. And he showed us Christ's example in actually giving your life for someone else's sake. He defined love so strongly for us. Someone is going to lose something. Who's it going to be? And we were challenged that maybe we need to choose to die for someone else by not making it about their sin. Jesus doesn't do that to us. Anger at sin ended on the cross. Jesus deals with us in love and acceptance. And we ought to treat others in the same way. We are all in process. And that process that God is working on in us is exactly what frees us to love others right where they are. John clarified for us that that love is what the world will hate about us. We so often misunderstand that the world will hate us because of our devotion, because of our holiness. That is not what John was saying when he said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. He was saying the world is not going to understand your forgiveness and your acceptance and your love of people who don't deserve it. And that's what they'll hate you for. And all of that brings us to today, our final section in this journey with John. And we'll see all of this come together towards such a beautiful truth. Today's section of scripture is a long one, 1 John 4, 7 through 21, if you want to turn there. We heard Kyle read the entire thing earlier. The topic is still love, but as you may have noticed in the last 10 weeks, John loves to repeat himself. He talks in cycles and is always circling back to these, what was that? Is everything okay? Oh. Um... John repeats himself. He talks in, in, in circles. He's always circling back to these beautiful concepts again and again, weaving them together over and over. And as we listen to this section read by Kyle, I'm sure a lot of those things he read sounded familiar. They are a beautiful summation of everything John has been showing us. But we're not going to spend time with all of those concepts today because we've already covered them a lot so far. This morning, I want us to focus on just two verses in this text that John has not talked about yet. This will be the first time we'll see John address these two concepts specifically, and they are the perfect bookend to this journey that he's had us on. Here they are. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, we've heard a lot from John about how he had seen Jesus. He saw with his own eyes. He had seen, heard, touched Jesus. He said over and over, I was there. I'm a witness to these things. We have yet to hear him talk about this place 
that we find ourselves today. This reality we live in, that no one has ever seen God. John had to have known the day was coming when there would be no one left on earth who had seen Jesus with their own eyes. And we've heard John talk a lot about love, but he hasn't talked about it being perfected. And he has yet to address fear and love. And he says this beautiful thing here, that perfect love casts out fear. What are these beautiful new concepts about? Well, with all this talk of awareness and growing in maturity and understanding of ourselves and God, I think this is a good place to start. Can we be honest and self-aware enough to consider what these two concepts reveal about us? That we have some fear when it comes to being accepted and loved. We know all too well how imperfect our human love really is. I believe we all experience that fear in love. And I think we experience this for one of two reasons. I think the more obvious reason is that if we were truly honest with ourselves, it's hard to believe we deserve love. Because most of us believe we deserve punishment. Especially if we let people see who we really are deep down inside. How selfish we can be. How many times we've wandered from the fold of God thinking something outside of himself would satisfy. How often we squander the treasure our father so generously gives us. I think of the prodigal son here. I know a lot of you are familiar with that story. There's a loving father with two sons. The younger son asks his father for his inheritance so he can go do his own thing. The father agrees. The younger son squanders his inheritance on all kinds of worldly things and finds himself broke and destitute, forced to work as a hired hand taking care of pigs. And he's so alone and hungry, he actually longs for a portion of the pig's slop. He decides even the hired hands on his father's land have it better than him. So he'll go back home and he'll beg his father to take him back. He'd be thrilled for the father to settle just having him as a servant. The father sees his prodigal son coming down the road. And instead of passing out judgment and punishment, he runs to greet his son. Welcomes him home and throws a big party to celebrate his return. But there's an older son who's been there all along making the right choices, being a good steward of his father's wealth. And that older son is upset when he hears about the party. He's resentful that his younger brother made such poor choices and was still welcomed back home with a big party of all things. In that story, there's this beautiful picture of perfect love casting out fear for the prodigal son. And there's this example of fear and punishment present in both sons. The younger son being afraid of what he believes he deserves. The older son being afraid his brother won't get the punishment he believes he deserves. That older brother is fearful of being overlooked. I think we can relate to that prodigal son when we know what we've done is wrong. And we can't help but have this fear that our father will make us pay for it. We believe we're no longer worthy to even be called a son. Our hearts become disconnected from the true heart of our loving Father. 
because of our actions, our heart condemns us. And then there's this less obvious connection with fear and being loved that I think is important to point out. It can be seen in the prodigal son's brother's life, the older son. Maybe you're not like the younger brother to go squander away the treasure our father so generously gives. Maybe you're like the older brother who never strayed and always obeyed. Somehow, at some point along the way in your life, you begin to believe in this system of getting exactly what you earn through your actions. And that's very appealing to know exactly what you're going to get by checking all the right boxes. It feels like a shortcut to acceptance, and it's a no-brainer decision to take it. To put it simply, you can get there faster. But do you see how easy it is for us to lose the heart connection with our Father when we take this path too? When we turn fellowship back into obedience. When we turn fellowship back into obedience. When we do that, our hearts don't condemn us. They begin condemning others. We condemn either our prodigal younger brother for his foolish actions we were so careful to avoid, or we condemn our loving father who shows grace that we believe is undeserving. Even the older brother, who seemed to make all the right choices, found himself face to face with fear. Fear that his good actions actually meant nothing. Fear that those who don't do things right will still receive God's blessing. And the father had to remind the older brother of something. All his focus on his behavior had caused him to forget. And I love this. This is the way the story ends. The father says to the older son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The older brother had been trying to earn something that was already his. I think that story would be more appropriately named if we called it the loving father and his two lost sons. They were both lost. They both had some fear when it came to just accepting their father's love. I think these two lost sons present two very typical ways we experience fear in love. John is saying perfect love casts out that fear. And our hearts long to believe that. But what is true of us as humans is that our human love demands human merit. Our love is not that perfect love. Our love riddles us with fear because we have never been loved by anyone as well as, as we should be loved. We've never loved anyone else as well as they should be loved. God is the source of this love for us. God who is the only one who fully knows and fully accepts us, loves us, with a perfect love. And for us, only total acceptance will remove the fear in love. A relationship free of fear is a relationship where there is total acceptance of that broken person you're in relationship with. It will be tough for us to commit to total acceptance of another when we don't embrace and believe total acceptance to be true of us by God. We really can't love unless we've been loved. 
And there are no shortcuts to that truth. You can't get there faster by just knowing it as head knowledge. It's something we've got to work out within our hearts and minds and experience it and wrestle for it. It's very much like a 12-step program. I think I see how John has laid out the steps for us. It starts with Jesus and confessing he is who God says he is. God's way of revealing himself to us is fully divine and able to save, but also fully human and able to be intimately aware of our suffering and our shame. Why didn't God just leave us with the Ten Commandments? He could have just stopped there. We had the rules we needed to not destroy ourselves and others. Why did he take it further and come to us to die? Because he's fighting for our hearts. He's not fighting for our behavior. Why does John double down on that and make us aware that we are misunderstanding obedience if we think it's about how good we are? Why does God give us this freedom to climb out from under the weight of rules and just float about in everlasting grace? Because he's fighting for our hearts, not our behavior. When we want to point out our own devotion and dedication to God by way of how righteous we can be, why does John say, no, the greatest temperature check of your devotion to God is by how you love others. Because our God is fighting for our hearts, not our behavior. Behavior is the shortcut we want. It's a shortcut because it only requires some head knowledge. Behavior does not have to be connected to our hearts. The harder work is in fighting for heart connection, and that is a much longer road. Admitting we don't have it all figured out And we have a genuine need to be continually led and shaped. And on that longer road, without shortcuts, doing the work, we find ourselves authentically connected to God's heart, which is what we were created for. And we begin to experience these flashes of belief that we are, in fact, accepted for who we are. We start to break free from the broken human love that requires human merit. And we begin to experience true love, perfected. Life is not about being good. It's about being loved. When his great love is displayed in us, there's no greater visual of God alive and at work in this world. An invisible God who no one has ever seen is made visible. That's what John's talking about. And that's where all this leads us. There's no greater way to testify to the world about Jesus. They will know us by our love. All of those Bible characters I mentioned at the beginning, like they were introducing themselves at a recovery group. Noah, Moses, David, Peter. They had quite the rap sheet of bad behavior. Yet God still accomplished amazing things through them. They each experienced how much deeper, richer, wider, and mightier God is because they allowed the Spirit to reveal some things to them 
and develop some awareness of things they had been misunderstanding about God. Evidence of God's work in their lives was not found in their behavior. It was found in their heart. Evidence of God's work in our lives works the same way. It's not in our holiness. It's not in our dedication. It's not in our perfectly placed concern on certain issues. It's not in our obedience. It's not in our words. It's not in our confronting others about their sin. It's not in our behavior. It's in our hearts. It's in our love. Bringing that God-like love into the lives of the people around us perfects love. And we can transcend our broken human love that requires human merit. And we make an invisible God visible. And when John describes that love as perfected, he uses the Greek word teleo, which means completeness. But he doesn't write it once. He actually writes it teleo, teleo saying it's completely complete, it's perfectly perfected. So some questions come to all of us. Can we acknowledge that we may need to develop some awareness in certain areas of our life? Can we be humble enough to admit that we may not have it all figured out? There may still be some misunderstandings. We need, God, we need God's help to clear away so we can see truth clearly. Evidence of this developing awareness isn't in your behavior. It's in your heart, and it looks like love. Sacrificial love that is willing to choose to be the one to lose something. Love that fights for and rests in heart connection and is not distracted by behavior. Can you accept and believe that this is the way your God loves and pursues you? Can you accept the life-changing truth that your God is not fighting for your behavior? He is fighting for your heart. And can you let that change everything about who you believe yourself to be? Can you accept and believe that this is the way God loves and pursues the people around you? That he's not fighting for their behavior. He's fighting for their heart. Can you let that change everything about who you believe them to be. I started out this sermon by introducing myself as a codependent like I would at a recovery meeting. I'm not saying we all need to start going to recovery groups, but we all do need to be healed by perfect love. And I want to encourage us all to be honest with ourselves and humble enough to admit that if we each dug into our lives a little bit, we would find some dysfunctional tendency that we keep finding ourselves bound to, some shortcut we keep trying to take. And no matter what that thing is in your life, I think we would all find that at the root of that for all of us is a broken pursuit of love and acceptance that we are looking for outside of Christ. And ironically, that love and acceptance has always been ours. Our Father is there reminding us, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. A recovery group is simply a group of very brave people 
who are humble enough to admit to themselves and to each other that there's some awareness that needs to be developed around a certain area of their life. This is what we're trying to do here at Pulpit Rock. Be that for each other so we can experience healing and come back to our true selves in fellowship with our loving Heavenly Father. And I see John longing to shape Christ followers who are so completely healed and aware and secure inwardly because they have let the gospel change their lives. And they can't help but pour that good news into the world around them. And John has been clear what that good news gospel is and how we could share it with the world.